Chapter forty two of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dear boy and Pip's comrade, I am not going for to tell you my life like a song or a story book, but to give it to you short and handy. I'll put it at once into a mouthful of English. In jail, out of jail. In jail, out of jail. In jail and out of jail. There, you've got it. That's my life, pretty much. Down to such times as I got shipped off and out of Pip stood my friend. I've been done everything too, pretty well, except hanged. I've been locked up as much as the silver tea kittle. I've been carted here and carted there, and put out of this town and put out of that town, and stuck in the stocks and whipped and worried and drove. I've no more notion where I was born than you have, if so much. I first become aware of myself down in Essex, a thieving turnips for my living. Someone had run away from me, a man, a tinker, and he took the fire with him and he left me wery cold. I knowed my name to be Magwitch, christened Abel. How did I know it? Much as I'd knowed the birds' names in the edges to be a chaffinch, a sparrow, thrush. I might have thought it was all lies together, only as the birds' names came out true, I suppose mine did. So far as I could find, there weren't a soul that see young Abel Magwitch with as little on him as in him, but what caught fright at him, and either drove him off or took him up. I was took up, took up, took up, to that extent that I regularly growed up, took up. That is the way it was, that when I was a ragged little critter as much to be pitied as ever, I see, not that I looked in the glass, for there weren't many insides of furnished houses known to me, I got the name of being hardened. This is a terrible hardened one, they says to prison wizards picking out me. May be said to live in jails, this boy. Then they looked at me, and I looked at them, and they measured my head, some on em. They had a better measured my stomach, and others on em give me tracts that I couldn't read, and made me speeches that I couldn't understand. They always went on again me about the devil. But what the devil was I to do? I must put something in me stomach, mustn't I? Howsoever, I'm a-getting low, and I know what's due, dear boy and Pip's comrade. Don't you be afeard of me being low. Tramping, begging, thieving, working, sometimes when I could, though that weren't as often as you may think, till you put the question whether you would have been over-ready to give me work yourselves. Bit of a poacher, bit of a labourer, bit of a wagoner, bit of a haymaker, bit of a hawker, bit of most things that don't pay and lead to trouble. I got to be a man. A deserting soldier in a traveller's rest, what lay hid up to the chin under a lot of taters, learned me to read, and a travelling giant, what signed his name at a penny a time, learned me to write. I weren't locked up as often now as formerly, but I wore out my good share of key metal still. At Epsom races, a matter of over twenty years ago, I got acquainted with a man whose skull I'd crack with his poker like the claw of a lobster if I'd got it on this hob. His right name was Compeyson. And that's a man, dear boy, what you see me a-pounding in the ditch, according to what you truly told your comrade, after I was gone last night. He set up for a gentleman, this Compeyson, and he'd been to a public boarding school, and he had learning. He was a smooth one to talk, and was a dab at the ways of gentlefolks. He was good-looking, too. It was the night afore the great race when I found him on the heath in a booth that I'd knowed on. Him and some more was a-sitting among the tables when I went in, and the landlord, which had a knowledge of me and was a sporting one, called him out and said, 
I think this is a man that might suit you, meaning I was. Compeyson, he looks at me very noticing, and I look at him. He has a watch and a chain and a ring and a breastpin and a handsome suit of clothes. To judge from appearances, you're out of luck, says Compeyson to me. Yes, master, and I've never been in it much. I'd come out of Kingston jail last on a vagrancy committal. Not but what it might have been for something else, but it weren't. Luck changes, says Compeyson. Perhaps yours is going to change. I says, I hope it may be so, there's room. What can you do, says Compeyson? Eat and drink, I says, if you'll find the materials. Compeyson laughed, looked at me again, very noticing. Give me five shillings and appointed me for the next night. Same place. I went to Compeyson next night, same place, and Compeyson took me on to be his man and partner. And what was Compeyson's business in which we was to go partners? Compeyson's business was the swindling, handwriting, forging, stolen banknote passing, and such like. All sorts of traps as Compeyson could set with his head, and keep his own legs out of, and get the profits from, and let another man in for, was Compeyson's business. He'd no more heart than an iron file. He was as cold as death, and he had the head of the devil aforementioned. There was another in with Compeyson, as was called Arthur, not as so christened, but as a surname. He was in a decline, and was a shadow to look at. Him and Compeyson had been in a bad thing with a rich lady some years afore, and they'd made a pot of money by it. But Compeyson betted and gamed, and he'd have run through the king's taxes. So Arthur was a dying, and a dying poor, and with the horrors on him. And Compeyson's wife, which Compeyson kicked mostly, was having pity on him when she could, and Compeyson was having pity on nothing and nobody. I might have took a warning by Arthur, but I didn't, and I won't pretend I was particular, for where'd be the good on it, dear boy and comrade? So I begun with Compeyson, and a poor tool I was in his hands. Arthur lived at the top of Compeyson's house, over nigh Brentford it was, and Compeyson kept a careful account again him for board and lodging, in case he should ever get better to work it out. But Arthur soon settled the account. The second or third time as ever I see him, he come a-tearing down into Compeyson's parlour late at night, only in a flannel gown, with his hair all in a sweat, and he says to Compeyson's wife, Sally, she really is upstairs along of me now, and I can't get rid of her. She's all in white, he says, with white flowers in her hair, and she's awful mad, and she's got a shroud hanging over her arm, and she says she'll put it on me at five in the morning. Says Compeyson, why, you fool, don't you know she's got a living body? And how should she be up there without coming through the door or in at the window and up the stairs? I don't know how she's there, says Arthur, shivering dreadful with the horrors, but she's standing in the corner at the foot of the bed, awful mad, and over where her heart's broke, you broke it, there's drops of blood. Compeyson spoke hardy, but he was always a coward. Go up along this drivelling sick man, he says to his wife, and Magwitch, lend her a hand, will you? But he never come nigh himself. Compeyson's wife and me took him up to bed again, and he raved most dreadful. Why, look at her, he cries out. She's a-shaking the shroud at me. Don't you see her? Look at her eyes. Ain't it awful to see her so mad? Next, he cries, she'll put it on me, and then I'm done for. Take it away from her. Take it away. And then he catched hold of us, kept on talking to her, and answering of her till I half believed I see her myself. Compeyson's wife, being used to him, give him some liquor to get the horrors off, and by and by he quieted. 
Oh, she's gone, as her keeper been for her, he says. Yes, says Compeyson's wife. Did you tell him to lock her in and bar her in? Yes, and to take that ugly thing away from her? Yes, yes, all right. You're a good critter, he says. Don't leave me, whatever you do, and thank you. He rested pretty quiet till it might want a few minutes of five. Then he starts up with a scream and screams out, Here she is. She's got the shroud again. She's unfolding it. She's coming out of the corner. She's coming to the bed. Hold me, both of you. One of each side. Don't let her touch me with it. Ah, she missed me that time. Don't let her throw it over my shoulders. Don't let her lift me up to get it round me. She's lifting me up. Keep me down. Then he lifted himself up hard and was dead. Compison took it easy as a good riddance for both sides. Him and me was soon busy, and first he swore me, being ever artful, on my own book. This here little black book, dear boy, what I swore your comrade on. Not to go into the things that Compison planned and I done, which would take a week, I'll simply say to you, dear boy and Pip's comrade, that that man got me into such nets as made me his black slave. I was always in debt to him, always under his thumb, always a-working, always a-getting into danger. He was younger than me, but he'd got craft, and he'd got learning, and he overmatched me five hundred times told, and no mercy. My missus, as I had the hard time, what? Stop, though, I ain't brought her in. He looked about him in a confused way, as if he had lost his place in the book of his remembrance, and he turned his face to the fire, and spread his hands broader on his knees, and lifted them off and put them on again. There ain't no need to go into it, he said, looking round once more. The time with Compton was almost as hard a time as I ever had. That said, all said. Did I tell you I was tried alone for misdemeanour while with Compton? I answered, no. Well, he said, I was and got convicted. As to took up on suspicion, that was twice or three times in the four or five year that it lasted. But evidence was wanting. At last me and Compton was both committed for felony, on the charge of putting stolen notes in circulation. And there were other charges behind. Compton says to me, separate defences, no communication. And that was all. And I was so miserable, poor, that I sold all the clothes I had, except what hung on my back afore I could get jaggers. When we was put in the dock, I noticed first of all what a gentleman Compton looked, with his curly hair and his black clothes and his white pocket handkerchief. And what a common sort of wretch I looked. When the prosecution opened and the evidence was put short aforehand, I noticed how heavy it all bore on me, and how light on him. When the evidence was given the box, I noticed how it was always me that had come forward, and could be swore to, how it was always me that the money had been paid to, how it was always me that had seemed to work the thing and get the profit. But when the defence came on, I could see the plan plainer. For, says the counsellor for Compeyson, my lord and gentlemen, here you as afore you, side by side, two persons as your eyes can separate wide. One the younger, well brought up, who will be spoke to as such. One the elder, ill brought up, who will be spoke to as such. One the younger, seldom if ever seen in these here transactions, and only suspected. T'other, the elder, always seen in em, and always with his guilt brought home. Can you doubt if there is but one in it? which is the one, and if there's two in it, which is the much worse one, and such like. And when it come to character, weren't it Compeyson as he had been to school, and weren't it his schoolfellows as was in this position, and in that, and weren't it him as had been knowed by witnesses in such clubs and societies, and note to his disadvantage? 
and when it me as had been tried before and had been knowed up hill and down dale in bridewells and lock-ups and when it came to speech-making weren't it compison that could speak to him with his face dropping every now and then into his white pocket handkerchief ah and with verses in his speech too and weren't it me as could only say gentlemen this man at my side is a most precious rascal and when the verdict come weren't it compison as was recommended to mercy on account of good character and bad company and giving up all the information he could again me and weren't it me as never got a word but guilty and when i says to compison out of this court i'll smash that face of yourn ain't it compison as prays to the judge to be protected and gets two turnkeys stood betwixt us and when we're sentenced ain't it him that's gets seven year and me fourteen and ain't it him as the judge is sorry for because he might a done so well and ain't it me as the judge perceives to be an old offender of violent passion likely to come to worse he had worked himself into a state of great excitement but he checked it took two or three short breaths and swallowed as often and stretching out his hand towards me said in a reassuring manner i ain't going to be low dear boy he had so heated himself that he took out his handkerchief and wiped his face and head and neck and hands before he could go on i'd said to compison that i'd smash that face of his and i swore lord smash mine too to do it we was in the same prison ship but i couldn't get at him for long enough though i tried at last i come behind him and hit him on the cheek to turn him round and get a smashing one at him when i was seen and seized the black hole of that ship weren't a strong one to a judge of black holes that could swim and dive i escaped to the shore and i was hiding among the graves there envying them as was in em and all over when i first seen my boy he regarded me with a look of affection that made him almost abhorrent to me again though i had felt great pity for him by my boy i was give to understand as compison was out on them marshes too upon my soul i half believed he escaped in his terror to get quit of me not knowing it was me as had got ashore i hunted him down i smashed his face and now says i as the worst thing i can do caring nothing for myself i'll drag you back and i'd have swum off towing him by the hair if it had come to that and i'd have got him aboard without the soldiers of course he'd much the best of it to the last his character was so good he had escaped when he was made half wild by me and my murderous intentions and his punishment was light i was put in irons brought to trial again and sent for life i didn't stop for life dear boy and pip's comrade being here he wiped himself again as he had done before and then slowly took his tangle of tobacco from his pocket and plucked his pipe from his buttonhole and slowly filled it and began to smoke is he dead i asked after a silence is who dead dear boy compeyson he hopes i am if he's alive you may be sure with a fierce look i never heard no more of him herbert had been writing with his pencil in the cover of a book he softly pushed the book over to me as provis stood smoking with his eyes on the fire and i read in it young havisham's name was arthur Compison is the man who professed to be Miss Havisham's lover. I shut the book and nodded slightly to Herbert, and put the book by, but we neither of us said anything, and both looked at Provis as he stood smoking by the fire. End of chapter 42